Hi, it's Chris. Look who I got with me for this intro. Tegan Goddard, friend of the pod and political lawyer publisher. Say hi, Tegan. Hi, Chris. Tegan's with me today because we want you to join us at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government on October 26th, 4 p.m. Eastern for our special live podcast event, Midterm Elections Preview. Blue Wave or Red Save? I have to say, Chris, I am really looking forward to this. It's going to be a great show. We've got great guests, and it's going to be right there in the famous Kennedy School Forum. Yeah, let's tell the folks about our guests. Our confirmed panelists, Rick Wilson, Republican political strategist, number one New York Times bestselling author of Everything Trump Touches, Dies. Ashurangapa, CNN legal and national security analyst, former FBI agent, and senior lecturer at Yale University. We also have Claire Malone, 538 senior political writer, and, of course, Tegan Goddard. And for any of my podcast listeners or Tegan's Political Wire readers, a special offer. Come and say hi to Tegan and me after the event, and you'll get a signed copy of our book, You Won, Now What? How Democracy Works from City Hall to the White House. That's a cool offer, Chris, but, you know, my signature comes first. Whatever you need, big man. You are, you are really something. Why don't, you, why don't you just tell folks what happens if they can't get into the event? Well, Chris, as I tried to explain to you, we live in a digital age, so we'll have a live video stream. Political Wire readers will find it at the top of politicalwire.com on October 26th. And, of course, we'll drop the whole thing as a podcast after the event. We'd love to see everyone there if you can make it. Let's fill the forum for the midterm elections preview, Blue Wave or Red Save, October 26th at 4 p.m. Oh, and by the way, the event is free. Uh, that's my kind of pricing for sure. Um, one, one thing, though, before we leave, um, thank you to everyone who takes the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Taken several more folks did, and it makes a big difference. So if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Everyone knows the peril I'll ask, though. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. Hey, Chris, we just love this podcast, but can we wrap this up and get on with the show? I know you've got Michael Lewis this week as your guest, and I think people would love to hear from him. I think that's a good uh, good idea and a solid guess. Time to say goodbye, Tegan. Maybe, uh, maybe you'll come back as a pod guest soon. I'd love to. Goodbye, Chris, and see you at Harvard on October 26th. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. How do you make the most arcane, overlooked, eyes glazed over, and most critical aspect of the U.S. government interesting? How do you help folks understand that the so-called deep state, the parts of the bureaucracy that some people ignore and belittle, is actually vital to our safety, well-being, and, frankly, our future? Well, it's simple. Have Michael Lewis write about it. And now... He has. In his new book, The Fifth Risk, Michael goes inside several government departments, energy, agriculture, interior, EPA, and more, and reveals the truths that might seem funny if they weren't so scary. Not only was the Trump administration unprepared to run the government, the plan may have been crafted and executed by design. After all, want to shrink government? The easiest way is simply to not staff it. So why does this matter? Well, do natural disasters like hurricanes or fires matter? Is it important to find black market uranium before terrorists do? What if we no longer feed kids sufficiently at school? 
Lewis does for government bureaucracy what he's done for the unsung parts of a football team's offensive line, for credit default swaps, and for a baseball executive's approach to talent. He pulls it apart and exposes the fascinating, essential elements. Lewis does what no politician has taken the time or seemingly has the ability to do, make clear why government matters. Reagan famously said, government's not the solution, government's the problem. Maybe that's because Reagan never read Michael Lewis's new book. Before we begin, though, I want to remind you about our show's terrific sponsor, The Cook Political Report, and a special offer for our listeners to get an 18% discount off all subscriptions. You already know. People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to The Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. And for Political Wire listeners, a special offer. You can use the code POLITICALWIRE to get 18% off all subscriptions. Just go to cookpolitical.com and use the code POLITICALWIRE. That's one word, Political Wire, to sign up and get 18% off. That's cookpolitical.com, code POLITICALWIRE. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Michael Lewis. Michael, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. So you've turned a number of remarkable literary feats in your career, but I think you top-ticked it this time. You not only made me feel bad for Chris Christie, you made me wish he were in government. Should, should I wish that Chris Christie were in government or at least had been uh, part of that transition? Uh, in the worst possible way, you should wish for that. Uh, because when, when, so Christie had built a transition team before Trump, before the election, with hundreds of people who actually were quite knowledgeable about the kind of places they would have gone into. And he, more to the point, it vetted, uh, the leadership for the Trump presidency and made sure that, you know, people didn't have conflicts of interest and they knew what they were talking about, et cetera, et cetera. So they, independent referees will tell you that it was actually a pretty slick transition that had been built. The Trump fires, the, all of it, the day after the election. And, and so many problems will, I think, will be traced back to that moment because it, it left them incapable of running the government. Why did you return to politics? I don't think you've been here really since you followed uh, the Grizz back in the 90s. What, 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 what made you come back to it? You know, it's funny. My, uh, one of my literary heroes was Tom Wolfe. And Wolfe, in his letters, which I went through with in the New York Public Library, says at one point, why bother ever writing about Washington and politics? He says, it says American, American democracy is this train that's on the track, and American government is this train that's on the track, and it's just going to keep going and going and going, no matter. and people are going to holler at it from the right and holler at it from the left, but nothing's ever going to change. And what brought me back into it was the feeling that, oh, my God, it actually could change. Uh, the, the, the democracy is actually at risk. And I, in particular, uh, the thing that brought me back was I just finished The Undoing Project, this book about Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman, who were two psychologists who had looked at the way people can and cannot evaluate risk. And they had, I was, I was roughing their work against what Trump seemed to be doing right when he came in. Mm. And their work, out of their work falls the insight that people are not very good at evaluating catastrophic risks. That if you take a risk that there's a one in a hundred thousand chance of something bad happening and you turn it into something, a risk that there's one in ten thousand chance of it happening, you've, 
you know, you've, you've amplified it 10 times, but people don't feel that. And I felt by the way he was mismanaging the transition that he was amplifying the entire portfolio of risks that the federal government manages. And, and that, that, that just unnerved me. So that, that got me interested. So, so talk about that. Explain that phrase because I think it's, it's key one to understand. What do you mean that we should think of the federal government as a portfolio of risks? Well, whatever you think about the federal government, I think we'd all agree that it's like basic function is to keep us safe. And it does this in the most obvious ways, and the one we pay attention to is with the military. It stops bad people from coming and doing bad things to us and protects our interests on foreign soil and all the rest. But, but in addition to that, there's just dozens of risks you don't think about that every day that they are managing. For example, the risk of a pandemic. Uh, you know, the, 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 one of the... One of the horrors in the back of the Obama administration's mind was airborne virus uh, and what would happen if we had to deal with that. We're overdue. Um, uh, terrorist attack is an obvious risk. A, a least obvious risk, a less obvious risk is that some prescription drug gets so out of control that more Americans are dying from overdosing on it than died at the peak of the Vietnam War. And that's, that's what's happened with opioids. Yep. Uh, the The... You can, you can go into almost any department in government and find an existential risk. And the first one I start with, energy department, they manage the nuclear stockpile and sit there worrying every day that some nuclear bomb is going to go off when it shouldn't. And yet the people of, who are in the county of Hanford, Washington, the place where all of this nuclear waste had been dumped and that depends on the federal government, the, the, what was it? Was it 80%? I forget what figure it was. But they voted overwhelmingly for Trump, who is looking to defund that the functions that, that, one, keep that town in business, keep that county in business, but more importantly, keep that county safe. How do you, how, how do you kind of reconcile the disconnect between, and you, you talk about it, the, the rural parts of America that benefit from government are the ones that voted, in a sense, against their self-interest. Did, did, you, did that make sense to you at all? Well, it doesn't make sense economically, and it is absolutely true that, that there's a, there was a, a definite correlation. The more dependent on the federal government a person was, the more likely he was to vote for Trump. Um, they may, the person may not know how dependent on the federal government he is. He may think that he, the nice firehouse and schoolhouse and the electricity and the power that comes to a small town has nothing to do with the federal government. <laughs> In fact, the Department of Agriculture is behind it. Or he may think that Oh, this plutonium waste site in 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 Western Washington that's being cleaned up. Uh, that'll just go on without the federal government's help. But no, the federal government's spending three billion dollars a year cleaning it up. Um, so there was a clearly a disconnect between the narrow economic interests of the people who tended to go for Trump and what Trump was going to do to them. Um, so how do I reconcile that? I, you know, I don't. I would say that what I'm about to say is I don't think it is all that original, but I think it is true that um, people don't actually vote their economic interests, uh, that they vote, they vote for all kinds of other reasons. And what Steve Bannon would say and what he said to me yeah. is that what people vote is they vote against. They don't vote for their economic interests. They vote, they vote against something. What gets people to the poll? Fear, polls, fear and anger. And, he, Trump was able to whip up fears and angers about other things than these people's economic interests and pointed in a certain direction. It, why is there nobody 
who's making the story. One of the things that you did, I felt in this book, and and you know, it's one of your unique skills as a fellow who's read uh, um, much, but not all of of what you've written over the years. Um, a lot of a lot of the stuff that you've written, um, you engage this story of what government can do. Right, back going back to um, maybe one of the periods where you kind of came of age, I believe. You know, you call it the '80s, where where Reagan really made clear government's not the solution; government's the problem. And yep. in an, in an engaging, this is almost a a counterweight. I don't know that you intended that this way, but it's a counterweight to that statement. You you outline. Well, wait a minute, actually, government. You know, here's where government is a solution. And as you just said, you know, a couple minutes ago, it, it's a solution for folks, and they they almost don't. We almost, you know, maybe me, you know, I as well, don't recognize what it's doing to our benefit. Why does that story? Why is that story so hard to tell? Why is there not a marketplace for people? And I would think politicians. I would think that they are in the marketplace for this to be able to tell that story in a constructive, positive way. It's a, it is the question you just asked the question. Uh, and so first, yes, the first part of the question. I was very interested in this aspect of the story and. So part of one way to view the fifth risk as a book is a writer who, you know, a semi-knowledgeable writer groping his way towards a different sort of narrative about the federal government than the one that has been foisted on us by people running for office. Um, two, there's a narrow kind of um, uh, answer to the question. It's a, it's a boring answer, but I think it's true. Um, apart from NASA and the military, the government's not allowed to market itself. There's no budget for the Commerce Department to explain to people what it's doing for them. And so, absent that, uh, there's a vacuum. And, and the people, it really, it, it isn't explained. The government's sort of the opposite of Trump. Trump's able to brag about it, whatever he hasn't done. And, uh, and the government's not even able to advertise what it has done. So there is the, there's a kind of just a basic communication problem. Um, and then I think three, uh, the same problems that afflict the financial sector and its relationship to the society afflict the government and its relationship to the society. In, in particular, it's sufficiently complicated that it's very hard to, to communicate, even if it could advertise what it does. It's sufficiently complicated that, that it's just hard to get across, you know, um, I can think of ways to get it across, and one way to view the book is me trying to get it across. Yeah. The way you get across through the people. I mean, the people are amazing. The people, the the, the people in um, in a lot of these jobs that I'm describing are mission driven, passionate people who could be making two and three times the sum of the money they're making in the private sector, but they they know how important nutrition programs are, or they know how important the census is, or they know how important it is for a good physicist to be monitoring the nuclear stockpile. And they're there because they see the value of what they're doing. They have a purpose in their life. And if you tell the stories that way, I think people start to get it. But uh, it is the question you just asked is the mystery at the heart of our society. And if you look around the world, there are not a whole lot of countries where the population is in some kind of revolt in relation to its own government. The population is hostile to the government. You could say that, well, in Britain, they're hostile to the EU, the government. That's true. But they're not hostile to the British government. They see the, the, the a patriot is, 
love the government. You know, the government, and, and on top of it all, the government is not only like a tool for fixing the problems in our society, it's the only tool for some of the biggest problems in the society. So to, to the attitude Americans have taken, this sort of ambivalence, is, is a really curious thing. And why a politician has not risen up who can sell the government is a great mystery. Is there a deep state? No, God Almighty. People are so meek and mild and so busy doing their jobs. The idea they're like conspiring against anything, it's, it's crazy. They're so, and in addition, they're nervous little Nellies. So when, when I go out to report this thing, the people who will talk to me and let me use their names are mostly, are mostly former political people, Bush or Obama, mainly Obama, but I talk to Bush people too. The, the, and some of those people had been career civil servants at some point, and some of them became career civil servants, but they were used to being in the spotlight. The typical life, you know, career civil servant, their attitude towards me was, I'm just trying to keep my head down and get my job done. Don't use my name. I, you know, I, I, you know it, they were just the last, thing, the, last thing that they, the last thing they are is a deep state. It's like the least conspiratorial environment I've ever been in. And in terms of telling the story, um, there were so many examples. For, you know, one that jumped out to me, um, how come no one knows that fracking – which has, as you point out, has completely changed our dependency on energy, the prices of everything. It's, it's repositioned us militarily, you know, in, in all kinds and put, of... And it's put, a ceiling, it's put a ceiling on the price of oil, right? Yeah. People say oil is going to $200 a barrel. You go, BS, you know it's not because people just frack again and more oil will show up. And that was government research that, that, that launched it, right? The Department of Energy is responsible for the fracking industry. The Department of Energy is responsible for the solar solar industry and the wind power industry. Um, they are at least partly responsible for Tesla. They extended the first loans to, the, to, to build the Tesla factory in Fremont. There are, the bigger point here is that it is not true that the market will do everything and that the government's job is to step in where they're kind of obvious market failures. There are things the market does not do. The market does not bank very well in rural America, for example. The, the, the financial services do not extend to small populations scattered in the middle of nowhere. The, the, uh, the, and the market really doesn't do basic research well. I mean, a corporations fund what will pay out in five or ten years if they don't fund what's going to pay off big time in 20 or 30 years. And if you just rewind the tape in the American economy, you say, you know, what was the source of the most important innovations? Well, I think everybody would agree probably the most important innovation has been the Internet uh, for the economy. And that starts in DARPA. That starts in the Department of Defense. Yeah. Um, GPS, big components of the iPhone and Microsoft Windows. I mean, you can go down the list that the government was government research grants were the beginning of, uh, of it all. And so one of the things we need to do as a country is, is just destroy this myth that the government is like not the source of has nothing to do with innovation or the vital economy. It's that it's just dead weight. If there's some kind of, you know, intelligent public private partnership that's going on that we need to encourage. And, and to that point, as I was reading the book and I was trying to place it and trying to draw the line on, on so many of the other things that you've written in your career. And one of the words that really just kept coming to me was arbitrage. 
I mean, in so many of of the books and in the parts of life that you've looked at, I mean, in in Moneyball and almost the the gaps between people who have information and the people who don't have information or the people who can act and and the the ability to take advantage of that, right? So Billy Bean was able to take advantage of the fact that he was able to generate information that others couldn't. You know, um, uh, Liar's Poker, you, you, I mean, you were on the arbitrage desk, new, new thing. You, you know, you wrote about uh, folks who, you know, had insights or information on, on what was coming next. And, and you wrote that. And with this government, you know, I was trying to think about it. Is it, is it almost the inverse? We have private sector who is able to arbitrage the fact that they get access. You know, government is, is doing so much of this research, whether it's GPS, whether it's uh, fracking, um, all these different areas, and with the weather systems, you know, AccuWeather. And then private sector, by accessing that information is able to take advantage of it. I, I, I mean, I, I had to, I needed more time to think it through more clearly, but, but in each case, you, you identify these, these gaps in information, but then the ability to take advantage of that gap in information. I, am I kind of thinking about your approach? Yeah, correctly? Well, so, 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 um, I mean, I'm mixing a bunch of I, stuff. Here's, there. How I, here's how, here's how I connect. Yeah. Um, this story to say the money ball story. Yeah that if you were going to moneyball American society and you were going to figure out and you figure it out, you're going to figure out where the undervalued assets were, where investments should be made. And, 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 and conversely, where kind of overvaluation was taking place. Um, I think if it was, if you did that exercise, you'd say dollars spent in the civil service are the best dollars spent right now that it's been starved to the point where you're going to get huge returns if you invest brains and money there uh, compared to the private sector. And uh, then I kind of go further that as a a secondary consideration, dollars spent exploiting the information that the government collects are going to have huge benefits. So someone spent some dollars to get prescription drug uh, information up on the web. And it wasn't long before data scientists figured out that there was an opioid epidemic. If we hadn't done that, we wouldn't even, we wouldn't even know. It, that would have been all been going on. Think about this. More Americans dying every year than died at the peak of Vietnam War in battle. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, that would just bubble along in the society without us really knowing about it, much less addressing it. There's that kind of discovery to be made positive and negative discoveries to be made in government data that uh, is a huge gold mine. And it's a huge gold mine because all of a sudden we can manage and analyze this data. I mean, it was just too big to deal with uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And that, um, that's, a, that's a value weight. That's a money ball moment. I am attracted to the story because it does seem like there's this really dark misvaluation going on. I think of the public, I think of the civil servants as the Scott Hatterberg in the story. Uh, the, the, the player who is doing something that's subtle, not vivid, but enormously valuable to the team. And, uh, and I think of, I don't know, like the Wall Street banker yep. as, the, as the overvalued supposed su- superstar. Um, and if we could move some dollars from one to the other, we'd all be better off. 
you use a phrase, I don't know that I've ever seen the phrase before, um, government angels. And you talked about them. Those were the people who, with Kevin Concanon, um, who the VA social workers who visited um, his house in the 1950s. His brother had schizophrenia, and you write about this. And the parents' guilt racked, and, and was it nature, nurture? What did they do wrong? And, and the social workers visit, and they give the brother medication, and, and he's able to kind of, I guess, go on with his life. And, and you called those people government angels. Um, and it, it just it struck me, when was the last time someone who worked in our civil service, someone who worked in our government, was called an angel? Right. And, and, and to take it further, the, the young boy, Kevin Kincannon, sees this effect these people have had on his family and his parents. Yeah. Uh, and what he wants to do more than anything else is find a way to be that person uh, and, and do that for other people. And then he ends up, he ends up becoming a really gifted at the state level administrator of, of social welfare programs, especially nutrition programs, health and nutrition, so that he finds ways to get federal, uh, f- federal, federally paid for food into the mouths of starving, hungry people. And it's, it's, not, it's not a trivial thing. As he points out, the problem with the food stamps program is it's not used enough that there are people who are going hungry who really don't need to go hungry and that the states often gum up the delivery of this. And that this person who's then in his late seventies has, you know, dispensed hundreds of billions of dollars of federal dollars without having himself gotten rich. He's just been a public servant his whole life gets pulled back in to the Obama administration to, to run, to dispense essentially a trillion dollars of, of benefits over eight years to people and, and find better ways to do that. I mean, my God, is that not important? I mean, children are being fed because of him. Old people are being yeah. fed because yeah. of him. And so he kind of, but it all goes back to that moment in his childhood. And you find this over and over again with the, with the people I interviewed, people in the weather service, every one of them was traumatized by the weather when they were a kid. I mean, they like lightning struck their house or they got caught in a tornado or this, there's some deep reason, uh, why they're there. And it gets to the, to me, you know, this is like between the lines of the story, but it kind of gets to the question of, of like, why are some people mission driven? Why do some people become firefighters and some people go chase money? Uh, and the mission driven people always seem to be happier than the money driven people to me. Uh, they may not be as successful to everybody else. They may not be famous. They may not be rich, but they have this richness to their characters. And, and, and I kept coming back with the, the case of these people was they somehow connect meaningful experiences that happened to them in their childhoods to what they do in their adulthoods. And, and to start to close things out here, you connect these mission-driven people and the things that they've done and the improvements they've made in American life and, and the, the role of the civil service, and you connect that to what is happening, what happened the day after uh, uh, Trump won with the firing of Chris Christie, with the throwing out of the, the reams of, of, of notebooks and information uh, on, on who should be filling the government, and, and you connect it. And you point out how the government is being, in a sense, starved. And do you, did you end up concluding, you know, is this, is it design? Is it um, a, a lack of interest? 
Is it willful ignorance? What's the why that's, that's driving? And, and what do you see as the risk? At bottom, it's a kind of pettiness and short-sightedness. But the pettiness is um, one reason that Trump fired Chris Christie and the whole transition team is Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, asked yeah. him to. And one reason, the reason Jared Kushner asked him to was that Chris Christie had put his father in jail for a fraud, which his father had committed. Um, the, but the, 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 the bigger reason is that um, the Trump was so indifferent to the enterprise that he was handed. He said to Christie, uh, why are you doing this? Like, why are you preparing for this? If we happen to win, uh, you and I are so smart, we can leave the victory party two hours early and figure out everything we need to know about the federal government. There's just a, there's a, there's a real idiotic arrogance at the heart of this guy, uh, and it's infected the government. Um, I think what doesn't help, I mean, any one person is capable of being such an idiot. The problem is our whole society has, has, has uh, uh, enabled it. And I think there's a real problem in our society with just a understanding of civics. I think the whole, me too. I, one of the reasons I wrote this book is I needed a civics lesson. I wanted to know what these people were doing that they were going to be stopped from doing. And I, I think that everybody sort of needs to re-engage and, and understand their government. I think that's what you've written. That was one of the, the – I didn't get to this question, but one of the things I've written is I, I feel like you've done in this book what 100 years of civics books haven't been able to do, which is create the the, the reason – and emotional and intellectual of why we need to engage, of why government matters, of what these people do. And, and that may not have been your I – mean, I, I don't know that that was necessarily your initial goal, um, but that's one of the things I took away from it. It's uh, – you know, it's a, a – you know, don't mean to insult you here, but, but it's a civics book. No, that, that, that's flattering. Uh, it wasn't what I set out to write, but if, if I could just nudge the world in that direction, I'll feel like I've accomplished something. Well, it's a great read. Michael, thank you. Thank you for the time. Thank you. That was my conversation with Michael Lewis. Want more from Michael? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from him on the question, how does he determine what to write about? My thanks to Michael for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.